As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose he called you through our proclamation of the good news so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us. This is the word of the Lord. All right, our good German scholars remind us that when we look at a passage of Scripture, we should do our best to understand the Sitzenleben, the setting in life. What do we know about this ancient town of Thessalonica? We know it was founded in the year 316 before the Common Era, so that takes you back into the Golden Age of Greece. Northernmost Greece was called at that time Macedonia. And a man rose to great power and prominence named Philip of Macedon. This was the time of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. Philip wanted the very best for his young son Alexander, so he brought Aristotle there to teach his own son, to be his tutor, his mentor. And Alexander came in time to be known as Alexander the Great. Thessalonica was founded during that time in 316 and named for Alexander's half-sister. Same father, different mother. Her name, Thessaloniki. 149 years later, the Romans arrived, laid siege to the city and conquered it. And 37 years later, the Romans decided to link their great city of Rome with the ancient city of Byzantium in the east, modern-day Istanbul. This magnificent highway was called the Via Ignatia, and Thessalonica was included in that highway. So that when Paul crossed over the Straits of Bosphorus and began to teach and preach at Philippi, was thrown into jail there by folks who didn't want him disrupting the gods and goddesses of their community, he went straight down the Via Ignatia westward to Thessalonica. Scholars believe that the first letter to Thessalonica is the oldest material we have in the Christian scriptures, far older than the four Gospels. Many of those same scholars believe that 2 Thessalonians is one of the last things written that got into the Christian scriptures, that it was written by someone who needed the authority of Paul's name, but is writing in a very different circumstance, probably in the mid-90s, roughly 30 years after Paul and Peter had been put to death in the persecutions of Caesar Nero. Let's take a look at this text today. I think if we can properly understand it, it will help you understand why the sermons you hear from this pulpit are not the same your neighbors are hearing from pulpits where they go to church on Sunday morning. Number one. It begins by saying, as to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, I urge you, do not be shaken or alarmed. There are preachers in this city who try to keep their people coming back every week by scaring the thunder out of them. 
If one enemy fades away, then they raise up another one. Um, you better come back to church or this enemy of ours is going to deal with us. We've got to be aware of all the evil that's going on around us all the time. And here is a scripture much more in keeping with who we are as Boston Avenue United Methodist as to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word is perusia. Old Dr. F.F. F. Bruce from Scotland translates it with Advent. Just three weeks from now we will be in the Advent again, the coming, moving toward the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be shaken or alarmed. I've taught through the whole Bible, every verse, every chapter of all 66 books, twice, right here in the sanctuary. It took us nine years the first time. We slowed down, took 12 years the second time. Each time I came to Daniel, I announced, knowing that it would draw a bigger crowd, I'm going to start teaching on Daniel now, and the size of my class doubled. But when I told them that the book of Daniel was not written at the time of Daniel, and perfectly predicted the next 400 years, but was in fact written in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and explained and interpreted what had happened in the 400 years before, my attendance began to fall. Last summer I announced that I was at Revelation. We'd been through 65 books of the Bible. We were ready to deal with Revelation. Every verse of every chapter, all 22 chapters of the book, my class doubled the first Sunday. We went from 170 to 340. But when I told them that John knew nothing beyond his generation, that John said nothing, wrote nothing about OPEC, oil embargoes, the Soviet Union, Medvedev, or somebody else, the attendance began to wane. And by the time we got to chapter 22, it was my 170 who had been with me all the way. Because there are people who thrive on fear. Fear. Tell us just how bad it really is. Tell us who's going to get left behind. Tell us all these horror stories that we hear. And that's not Boston Avenue United Methodist since I've been here and the predecessors before me. This is not who we are. I ask you, don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I told you that Gail and I were in Germany again in May. It's a beautiful country. Berlin is a magnificent city again. We were there with our sons in 1988. We never dreamed we were there just a year before the wall would come tumbling down. And now Berlin is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the fall of that wall. I remember watching that night, and watching as the pickaxes were taken to the wall and it was chiseled away. When we were there in May, there's one little section of the wall in Potsdamer Platz. They left one little section up so you can have your picture made with it if you want to. When we were there in 1988, uh, the East German communist guards were patrolling through the Brandenburg Gate, huge German shepherd dogs right at their heels. We got through Checkpoint Charlie, visiting East Germany, then went into Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. The wall ran through the city. Outside the city it was a very tall wire fence, electrified all the way. Timber cut down, all the woods cut down on either side of the fence, lighted at night, carefully patrolled by the communist guards on the east side. 
But 20 years ago, the wall came down and the electrified fences came down. I was reading an article just this week about the red deer who live in Germany. It's a beautiful animal. I remember the first time we saw the red deer was in Ireland. There's some beautiful red deer that are near Dublin. There's a game preserve there. You can go into this magnificent park and see these beautiful animals. Well, there are lots of red deer that live in Germany as well. They've put little radio bands around the necks of some of them so they can keep close track of them. And they wondered how long it would take them to start migrating into Czechoslovakia. Twenty years later, none has crossed that area. None. The grasses have grown up again. The trees have come back. The deer walk up close and turn and walk away. The deer who live there now were not alive 20 years ago. But somehow that prior generation passed on its fear to this generation. And the radio signals show that they walk right up to where that electrified fence once stood and turn and walk away. And the person writing this article for the Wall Street Journal said, So the wall is still in their heads 20 years later. Don't let there be a wall that frightens you about coming home to God, about coming home to God as we know Him in Christ Jesus our Lord. This ought not to frighten or alarm you. Don't be frightened or alarmed. Number two. Second thing that scares people sometimes in this text is, uh, the end is not yet, this writer is saying, the rebellious one has yet to come. The rebellious one. Who is that? Well, all through the centuries, different ones have come to different answers. Way back in the time of Daniel, it was Antiochus Epiphanes. The rebellious one who claimed to be more important than God Almighty. That one who rode in animals into the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, who slaughtered a hog on the altar there that caused Judas Maccabees and his brothers to rise up against them, that in fact ushered in the celebration that's known as Hanukkah to this day. Antiochus Epiphanes, he's the rebellious one. Isaiah said, yeah, it's the king of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon, two great port cities in biblical times, modern-day Lebanon. Israelites, Lebanese, didn't get along well for centuries and centuries, still don't to this day. Uh, king of Tyre, he's the one. Ezekiel said, it's the king of Babylon, that's who it is, this rascal who's burned our temple, who's burned the palace, who's force-marched us all the way away. He's the one. In the first century of this common era, the writer said, no, it's the Caesar Caligula. Caligula said that he wanted a bust of himself put into the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. There were so many who came to fear him that he was assassinated the next year, in the year 41, after making those pronouncements in the year 40. Pick a century. There's always been somebody identified as the rebellious one. But I want you to hear Dr. Beverly Gaventa. Dr. Gaventa was a classmate of our Dr. Bill Tankersley, Union Theological Seminary of New York. 
She went on to get her doctoral degree and go into education rather than the local pastorate. Was offered a prestigious position of New Testament studies at Princeton Theological Seminary and has been there all of these years. She came as our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter a few years ago. Dr. Govinda has written commentary on Second Thessalonians, and this is what she says. If you really want to hear God speak, do not be asking, is the rebellious one he? Is the rebellious one she? But Lord, is it I? Is it I, that one who rebels against your will and your purposes? Later this month, Disney has a new movie coming out called The Princess and the Frog. There's an alligator in there who plays trumpet. His name is Louis, as in Louis Armstrong. But Louis's not around, of course, to play for this alligator now on the soundtrack. The one who lives in New Orleans and plays great jazz trumpet today is named Terence Blanchard. He's the voice of this alligator. He plays that trumpet. Terrace Blanchard is 47 years old and has already written musical score for more than 50 movies. He did a documentary after Hurricane Katrina about his mother's neighborhood and how it was washed away, how he took her there days later to see the old house. Everything washed out or ruined everything. And the score that he arranged for that, he said, the streams of the water, the water that just kept falling, the water that overpoured the levees, and my trumpet, the scream of the people for help, help that did not come for days for many. But Terence Blanchard says, my life is what it is and my successes are what they are because of a mother and father who taught me well. He said, my father worked two jobs to support our family. He was an insurance salesman Monday through Friday, and Saturdays and Sundays he worked as an orderly in a hospital, old charity hospital in New Orleans. When he was home at night, after long, hard days of work, he would say to me, life is about choices, Terrence. Every time you make a bad choice, it's easier to make one even worse. Every time you make a good choice, you make a good decision, it's easier to make a better one the next time. It's about choices. My mother taught us well, he said, also. And today, he said, when I'm teaching young musicians, I say to them, do you know why New Orleans has had so many problems? Because lots of people made bad choices. Our city made bad choices. Our state of Louisiana made bad choices. Every time you make a bad choice, it's easier to make one even worse. Every time you make a good choice, a right decision, it's easier to make a better one the next time. It's about choices. Yeah. Is it I, Lord? Number three. Stand firm. Hold fast to the traditions. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions. Tradition, ah, oh, we know that word from fiddler on the roof, if no other. Old Tevye talks to God about all of his troubles, how he wished he were a rich man so he didn't have to get up so early in the morning and milk cows, collect the milk, 
hitch up his old pony to a cart and pedal milk door to door, trying to have enough money for a proper dowry for five daughters, each one of them a little more independent than the other. And he kept crying out, Tradition! Tradition! Dr. Albert Outler, one of my professors at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, is the one credited by United Methodists around the world now with carefully stating the Wesleyan quadrilateral, of saying that when the Wesleys wanted to determine what is theologically true, they looked at four things. Scripture, number one, understanding this all-important book as accurately as we possibly can. Number two is tradition. And the Wesleys meant by that, depending on those people who were as close to the historical Jesus as, pro as possible, whose writings and lives did not get into the book, but who were close. Tradition. Number three is reason. We United Methodists know the importance of education, how the Wesleys sacrificed to send both John and Charles to preparatory schools in London where there, when there were no public schools in England, how they got both sons all the way through Oxford University, bachelor's and master's degrees, ordination in the Anglican Church, so that we United Methodists today have built college universities all over this country. From coast to coast, we have more than 130 colleges and universities that are United Methodist colleges and universities because we believe in reason, the informed mind, the informed mind. And then, then and only then comes experience. How has the Holy Spirit revealed theological truth, that is, knowledge about God to you? How has God revealed that to you through the workings of His Holy Spirit? Tradition. You read obituaries. Older folks read obituaries. Every morning at breakfast, I look at the obituaries in the Tulsa world. But there are other great newspapers of this country that carry international obituaries. Uh, one of those I read just a few days ago caught my attention. Claude Levi Strauss. Last name spelled exactly like my professors at Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana. A husband and wife, both professors, University of Berlin, who escaped with their lives the Holocaust, came to this country with a little 12-year-old son, Strauss. Levi, house of Levi, the house of priests, the house of priests, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, house of Levi. Ah, yes, Claude Levi Strauss, a Jew, born in Belgium, his father an artist, his grandfather a rabbi. He had benefit of education when he was 27 years old, 1935, Adolf Hitler's come to power just across the border, bad things are happening to Jews. This young Dr. Strauss went to Sao Paulo, Brazil to be a professor. Six years later, he was offered a distinguished uh, professorship in New York City, and he moved to this country. He was here for seven years. When the war was over, in 1948, university in Paris invited him to come to France. His field, anthropology. Early humans, what do we know about the hearts and minds of earliest humans? 
When he died, just a few days ago, he was just three weeks shy of being 101. He wrote extensively. He taught for the rest of his academic career there in Paris. That's where he died. But he is known for his studies into these ancient stories of tribal groups all over the planet. And this is what he says. Even though these ancient storytellers were limited, limited in that they thought the earth was flat, they thought the sun went round the earth every 24 hours, they thought the earth was the center of the universe, not just the solar system, they thought it was the center of the whole universe. They were wrong about all those things. But they found profound truths, he said, Look at the lessons of the Greek mythology. Stories about envy, lust, power, abuse. The Roman stories, envy and lust and power and covetousness and all of these things, tremendous insights. And this grandson of a rabbi finding great insight in the stories of his people. Example. Dr. Strauss was able to identify 18 stories about a great flood in the Middle East. 18 different tribal groups had a story about a big flood in the Middle East. All believed the water covered the earth. It didn't, of course. The earth has never been covered by one big flood. But their part of the world was, and so these various tribal groups have in their memory a big flood. How in the world did we survive? Somebody must have built the boat and got all the males and females on the boat so that we survived. Seventeen of the stories say the one who built the boat and saved humankind got to be God. In the Jews' story, Noah built the boat, assembled all the animals and, the, and, and, and birds and so on onto the boat, and when the floodwaters went down, had a celebration, planted grapes, made wine, got drunk, embarrassed himself in front of his kids, and then he died. Point of the Jewish story, only one gets to be God, and it's not you. Only one gets to be God, and it isn't you, Noah. And it isn't you, it is not I. There's only one. Hold fast to the traditions. Hold fast. You need to know these stories. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Kings, all the way to Revelation. There are profound truths in the stories. Hold them fast. Number four, this part about being chosen. We've all had the experience, I assume, of some time or other, some game or another, being chosen last. Somebody says, oh, we'll take you. Well, here in this passage, the author is so clear. Dearly beloved of God, he writes, dearly beloved of God, God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. 
Sanctification is a big, long word, but it comes from a short Latin word, sanctus. In the Latin Mass, they sing sanctus, sanctus. In English, we sing holy, holy. Same word, set apart, set apart. And this word sanctification is a process, the Wesley said. It's a process by which God's Holy Spirit moves our behavior to become more and more like our Christ, not like the behavior of the rest of the world. More and more like Christ, less and less like the rest of the world. God's Spirit does that. He chose you. God's grace comes to you. God's love, God's favor. Receive his gift and then let him change you. Let him move you from the center. Let God be God and let your brother and sister be the focus of your best efforts. Wednesday is Veterans Day and PBS is going to show a documentary about a group of folks in Bangor, Maine who for six and a half years have been needing every serviceman and woman who's left this country for the Middle East and those coming back. Bangor, Maine is a great place for refueling. It's way up north and moving far east. Good place to refuel. And the folks in Bangor, not a major U.S. city by size, heard about all these servicemen and women last touchdown on U.S. soil before getting to the Middle East, Iraq and Afghanistan, or first foot on U.S. soil when they're coming home. It was really organized by that generation Paul, uh, Tom Brokaw calls our greatest generation, the World War II folks, who remembered that when they came home, there was great celebration. And recalling that when many came home from Vietnam and other places, there were no ticker tape parades for them. So this handful in the beginning decided we're going to meet every plane. Every plane. In the last six and a half years, almost a million have passed through Bangor, Maine on the way to and from the Middle East. Our young women and men, almost a million. Every plane for six and a half years has been met by community citizens in Bangor. Most of them are older. They get out on cold winter nights. Sometimes there's snow, sometimes icy roads. They're out on the tarmac. They've been given special disposition to be out there meeting these young men and women when they get off the plane. I told this story at 8.30 service. And when I got through, out in the hallway, I saw Sheila and Royce Parr. And Sheila said, our son Reagan, an orthopedic surgeon, was sent to Iraq. And when his tour of duty was over, his plane landed in Bangor Bay. It landed in Bangor, and she said, when Reagan stepped off the plane, he saw this handful of elderly people. And one of them walked over to shake his head and tell him they were welcome, welcome home. And then held out his phone and said, is there anybody you'd like to call? Anybody you'd like to call? Reagan called his mother and daddy. So I'm home. I'm home again. 
One of the men who's been going out there all this time is 87 years old. His name is Bill Knight. His wife has died. He lives alone, and he has stage 4 prosthetic cancer. The young women and men whose hands he's shaking, whose necks he's hugging, don't know any of that. But in this documentary, Bill Knight says, You know, I really have no other reason for living except whatever good I can do for somebody else. So say we all. Amen.